You're listening to the KB Podcast Network. <laughs> hey guys, producer Darren here. Thank you so much for checking out the podcast today. McIntyre had the privilege of being a guest on the Business Method Podcast with Chris Reynolds. They had an awesome conversation and it was quite lengthy. So for this podcast, the Next Level Podcast, we're going to replay that, but we're going to break it into two parts. So right now you're about to listen to the part one of the Business Method Podcast replay. It's going to be a fun and exciting episode. You'll get to hear a lot about McIntyre's past, his sales history, how he started in the business world. It's going to be very, very informative and just an excellent bit of information on both of these parts. But this one here is part one. So buckle up. Here we go. Hey, this is Michael McIntyre. And right before this podcast begins, I want to give you a reminder, or some of you don't even know, we've got a next level experience coming in June 10th, 11th, and 12th, right here in Big D, Dallas, Texas. It's intense. It's amazing. It's Holy Spirit filled. It's not for snowflakes. Listen, if your life is working, that's who needs to come to this next level experience because it's about taking your life higher. You probably have that burning desire saying, you know, I know there's more for me. The Holy Spirit's dropping this on me. I feel that God's telling me there's more out there, but how do I get unstuck? How do I get out of this place where I feel mediocrity will come to next level experience? This is not a conference. This is three days of intensive and of experience learning just the same way you kind of learn how to ride a bike and it's all about relational spiritual financial business and physical so come on in it starts at Friday June 10th at 2 30 and goes to about 9 30 p.m. Saturday morning it begins at 8 a.m. and goes to about 9 30 p.m. Sunday morning about 8 a.m. it's about 9 30 p.m. and guess what cost you no money up front how cool is that at the end if you want to bless us great and pay it forward. So come on, check it out. Go to themichaelmcintyre.com and apply today. It's going to fill up. It's going to be cool. Oh, and if you're a snowflake, don't apply. This is for eagles wanting to fly higher and not flock with the turkeys. So come on, get after it. Hey, enjoy this podcast. It's a killer dealer. God bless you. And Jesus is king. Amen. Welcome to McIntyre's Next Level Podcast, a place for entrepreneurs, leaders, and dreamers to awaken and be activated to their full potential. Are you ready to get out of the boat and experience your next level? Here's your host, Michael McIntyre. Welcome to the show today, and we have a whirlwind of an entrepreneur that has an incredible life story that started an agency from scratch and leading the organization to become a $3 billion company. His name is Michael McIntyre, and he has been an entrepreneur for over 28 years. He started his own insurance agency way back in 1992, which quickly expanded into over 40 states and grew to $300 million in annual sales. That organization then became public and turned into a $3 billion company after its IPO. Michael and his agency have personally created over 175 millionaires and recruited and trained over 20,000 sales reps. He now is a coach and consultant and author, and he's on the podcast today. 
today telling us how he did it all. Michael, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Chris. Thank you so much for that kind introduction and uh, just so glad to be here and I'm excited. Thanks. It's always fun to talk to a a well-seasoned entrepreneur that has done so many things. 1992, I was 12. And, and back in the stone age, right? I, it feels like it's so crazy. Like now that there's two or three generations younger than than mine. But uh, yeah. how, how old were you in 1992? Oh my gosh! Now you got to make me think. Here. Yeah, I guess I was I was 30 years old, 31 years old. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. And had yeah. you have any previous entrepreneur experience before that? Not really. I mean, I did. I, I say not really. I mean, I did odd things when I was growing up. Uh, I grew up in uh, Michigan and uh, come from a divorced family and uh, five kids. My mother was raising us by herself. So I did odd jobs. I did odd things, had the paper route, did snow shoveling. Uh, Michigan, it's a big prosperous uh, undertaking, yeah. and, which was good. And I was really young and I did that. And I really had a flair to go out there, start little small businesses, which I did. Uh, but I, I went uh, when I joined the Air Force and uh, right out of high school, and my mom and dad couldn't send me to college. They didn't have any money, so I joined the Air Force to get my education. and And while I was in the Air Force, I took on a few entrepreneur things. I did some TV acting and some modeling, and then uh, got my college degree while I was there. Then left the Air Force and moved to Dallas, and that's when I really started. Things started getting interesting. How, how I, I've never heard of somebody in service that decided to do some TV acting and modeling while in service work. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> oh, man, it was so bizarre. I tell you, Chris, it was uh, I was doing this. I was uh, going to college full time and there was a person there that was uh, and I, I, I say full time. I was taking 12 hours a semester and okay. in between my Air Force job. And so there was a person there that was also uh, going to college from uh, their parents were in the military. And so they were taking advantage of some GI Bill and they worked for a, uh, a modeling agency, an acting agency in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. And so they approached me and said, would you like to do some TV commercials for Dillard's, uh, the clothing store? Oh, wow. So, okay. And they said, pay $75 an hour. And at that time, Chris, $75 an hour was like, you know, a hundred grand a day. That's a I lot mean, of money. Wow. A lot of money. And I said, yeah, you know, as long as I can keep my clothes on, I'll do whatever you want me to do. <laughs> And uh, so I did that and I, I did pretty well at it for, I don't know, it's probably for about a year and it was kind of fun. Uh, it was easy. And so, yeah, it was kind of weird. What was your role in the Air Force? Uh, I was a security specialist in uh, the Titan II intercontinental ballistic missiles. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, we dealt with the nukes and it was interesting. It was four years and um, it was kind of interesting at first, you know, when I went in when I was very young, I was 17 years old. My parents had to sign me and just got out of high school. And uh, so when I got there, it was all fascinating, but that got old after about a year and a half. But what was really good, the Air Force taught me a lot of discipline. It taught me how to get up in the morning. It taught me how to work with a diverse m- bunch of people. Um, and it taught me, it, it taught me discipline, which was really something good. And, uh, yeah. And I went to college full-time, went to Arkansas state university mm-hmm. and got my, got my degree there while I was there in business. And so I got discharged, um, uh, in 1982, 19, yeah, 1982. What was really cool though, there was, this was back again, a long time ago. And I was one of the few guys in the air force that was taking in my level that was taking advantage of college education. And so, the officers looked that favor on me and gave me time off for a lot of different things, which was really good. Something that just stood out when uh, you said this, Michael, but 
You you joined the Air Force when you were 17, did it uh, for four years. The, the, the Air Force really had such young guys ha- handling security for nukes back then. Like, that seems a little <laughs> crazy. It's crazy, man. <laughs> I mean, listen. I was, I, and I, I graduated in, uh, in, in, uh, I guess it was in that, that summer of 78, went uh-huh. right into the air force in August. And, uh, yeah, I didn't turn 18 until October. So my parents had to sign me in, but yeah, I mean, we were dealing with nuclear weapons and, and now we are guarding them mostly Chris. I mean, right. we weren't, we didn't have, we didn't have, uh, uh, to the, you know, the new codes or anything like that. But it was interesting because I was 17, 18 years old. And I remember that I had a 40 Mike, Mike grenade launcher, a 45 caliber and an M16 machine gun that I was, that I was very proficient at. I mean, they do train you well. I mean, uh, you know, we went through like, you know, four months of boot camp with that stuff. So yeah. Yeah. It's a young man's game. I get, yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, uh, (laughs) that's a wild story. Um, (laughs) So, so fast. Okay. So you went to college and you went through the air force and then you probably had another six or seven years in between then. And when you started the agency, what were you doing during that time? I was selling insurance. I I got in the insurance. My, uh, I I went to do some, I I did some more of the, you know, acting and modeling stuff, but it was just hit and miss stuff. And so I got in the insurance business and uh, by accident, really, because I, I, I was working at a really high-end clothing store. I got discharged from the Air Force, moved to Dallas. Um, I love Dallas. My uncle had moved here. And, and so I came and visited while I was in the Air Force, and I fell in love with the city. And so I was working at a high-end men's clothing store, selling like, you know, these Brioni suits that were like $4,000 each. And these guys came in and they said, hey, you look like you could sell insurance. I said, yeah, I bet I could. And so they said, why don't you come out here and, and try and anything to get out of it, you know, selling clothes. Uh-huh. And so I went out and I got my insurance license in 90 days. I'm out selling insurance and I'll never forget it, Chris, my first check out, uh, I, I was running appointments for this company and these leads and I was out in West Texas and I made like $6,408, which is more than I had made the whole previous year in the Air Force on my W-2. Wow. And I knew, I knew at that point, man, this is where I need to be. It was like, I was like black tower heroin, man. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> on this insurance thing. And so, yeah, I just knew it was a natural for me and uh, I was good at it. And I really enjoyed it. Were you, were you selling door to door back then? No, no, we had, uh, it had a really nice system. Uh, okay. we were, I was really blessed. We had a, uh, a lead system and they actually set our appointments. And so we were oh, selling nice. uh, estate, we were selling estate planning at, at life insurance and uh, to the senior market. And it was really good. I, I, I was really young. I was 23 years old. I guess it was 22 years old. I uh, just got my insurance license, got discharged from the air force and and I was on fire and I, I won all the awards that year. Uh, I never forget. And the, 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 the Christmas party, I won a brand new car. I won a Rolex watch and 5,000 hours cash. And I, I had no idea I was that wow. good until, um, you know, some of the old timers came up to me and said, man, how are you doing this? I said, I don't know. I just work, you know, um, <laughs> I, I, I think, I think I took that Midwestern work ethic and that air force experience and, you know, just went out there and worked and I did. And, um, I broke all the records and it was just a really, it was a natural fit for me, Chris, to be in sales and doing that. And I loved it. And I did that for, uh, I guess, I don't know about, uh, three years, the company changed up. And so I went with another company, got into health insurance business and did really well in that. And then, 
uh, decided to start my own agency. And that's when I, I started the, my own agency. And uh, as I say from that, the rest is history. But there's a lot in between in there, of course. What do you think set you apart from the rest of the sales agents? Because I've done sales. I, I was in sales um, with mortgages and with uh, real estate. And, and um, you know, I, I was decent at sales. I was above average. But there was always, you know, it seemed like a few people at the top that became the best in the recruiters. Yeah. And they just have a natural instinct to them, I think. But what do you think that is for you um, that set you above the rest? It's a great question. I think, you know, people ask me that a lot. And uh, especially when you start making money, they, they always want to know what the secret is. What do you yeah. do? And it's real simple. I, I, there's, there's a couple of explanations. First of all, the obvious one is perseverance, right? Okay. Uh, you've got to be able to persevere because rejection's going to happen in sales, as you know. Uh, and look, rejection sucks. There's just no, <laughs> there's just no way around it. I don't care if it's in a relationship, it's in, if it's in a marriage, if it's in a business opportunity, if it's in sales, when people say no, or they don't want to see you, it's a rejection process. And that, and nobody likes that, mm -hmm. but you have to get yourself ready for that. You have to kind of, you know, I guess, you know, get the rhino skin, so to speak, you got to be thick skinned on that. And you've got to be able to deal with that. That's one thing. The other thing is persevere. Don't quit. Uh, I had a manager tell me early on, said McIntyre, whatever you do, you can quit all you want. You can quit every day. You can quit every night. You can quit every morning, quit every afternoon. Just don't tell anybody that you quit. Okay. <laughs> you know, and because in sales, as you know, I mean, I was on straight commission and it's, it, it, it's not for the faint hearted. Right. And so you might get discouraged and you might want to quit and, you know, cuss out everybody, the universe, but then, Hey, don't tell anybody, just get, you know, get it out of your system. I call it throwing up take 10 minutes to throw up and then get back after it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you feel better about yourself. And I guess probably the the biggest thing, Chris is in sales. What really separated, I think my success from other people's failures was the fact that I, I didn't want to do the same thing that they didn't want to do. I didn't want to have to drive six hours. I didn't want to have to stay in a, you know, a dumpy hotel. I didn't want to have to, you know, get up on, you know, Sunday morning and drive, you know, four hours to get ready for my appointments on Monday. I didn't want to do any of that but I did it anyway. Yeah. And that's, I think the simplest thing in it. Yes. You need to be able to communicate. Yes. You need to be able to have personality. I used to tell when we used to recruit salespeople, I said, listen, if you don't have a personality, son, you better rent one <laughs> 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 at least for, at least for five days a week, right. because you know, nobody wants to talk to a, you know, uh, to a, you know, mortuary, you know, salesperson, everybody, you know, you got to have a personality. And so, I think perseverance, you know, never quit and, uh, you know, just, just do the things you don't want to do. Right. So, so we're in 1992 and you decide you were you just doing so well, you, you decided to start your own agency? Uh, partly. And yeah. So my father-in-law had died suddenly in 1992 and it was really difficult for my wife and I, and he, I was very close to, he was kind of a mentor to me okay. and it was a sudden death. And uh, it was really dramatic and, and very difficult. But uh, yeah, so I, I decided to start my own company and just because I needed to make a living. And uh, the industry had changed from the health insurance and life insurance. And so my brother and I, who had been working in sales before, got together and started working together. And we went out there and we started a whole new company from scratch. And so what we did is 
take, take this estate planning and make it easy for the average person to get estate planning. Because at that time, the only people who were really getting great estate planning were the millionaires or the 20 millionaire net, net five millionaires and the net high net worth people. So we wanted to take it out to the masses. You know, our, our, our motto was, if you can, if you, if you sell to the masses, you dine with the classes. Right. And so I like that. Yeah, we went out there and and took this and dummied it down and brought it out to the masses. And that's when we started. It was in late 1992. Okay. And um, were you, did you start this on your own or did you have partners? Okay. No, it was just, just myself. What were the first steps that you took? Uh, mainly getting my American Express card cleared because <laughs> I had no money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I had, I had uh, a little bit of money and I paid down my house at the time. Uh, just so I wouldn't have, to, if in Texas, if we did file bankruptcy, they had a homestead exemption. And so uh, okay. I didn't have much money, but I wanted to protect my assets for my family. So uh, I had an American Express card at the time, and I had like an $80,000 credit, a, a line of credit on it per month. And that's the first thing I did. You know, I, I teach people nowadays that, especially entrepreneurs, when I coach them, is the worst thing you could do is have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it makes you lazy. And what I did is with that American Express card, it made me very creative, Chris, and how to market this thing. So the first thing we did is I went out there and sold the product, developed a sales presentation, developed the whole presentation as lead systems and tested it. It took me about three months to get it, get it right. And then we started doing direct mail and uh, it was pretty phenomenal. We started really doing Mm. well. And it, by, by the time I got ready to sell the company, we were probably spending about eight and a half million dollars a year just on postage. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so one thing that I think is really key, Michael, that you mentioned is, is you created systems and tested them at the be- very beginning. And I see so many entrepreneurs f- not do this. And yeah. I think that's a really valuable lesson. Um, could, you, could you talk a bit more about the systems that you created then and maybe give some advice to the listeners on how they can create their own systems and test them and make sure that they're the right systems for their company? Yeah, no, that's great, Chris. It's a good observation. Look, the, the fact is most salespeople, most entrepreneurs that are listening here probably are like me with a type A personality. You know, mm-hmm. uh, They're drive, drive. They don't want to slow down and figure stuff out. But what happens happens you you can do that when you have a small shop you can you can you know uh you know ramrod the deal by yourself or with you have two or three people because because the margins are so fat you'll make it won't hurt your mistakes but when you get to be a regular business when you're actually filing a tax return and you're actually doing things you know you really have to have systems and so uh the first system we had to figure out is is to make sure that we had a lead system because you can have in, in the insurance world in my world, in marketing, there's a billion great products. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got a great product, whether it's, you know, the latest MLM or the latest life insurance universal, whatever it is, or the Bitcoin or the, the FinTech or the crypto uh, or the algorithm in Forex. Everybody's got a great system. That's not hard to get or a great product. product. What's, what's the hard thing to do is have leads. And that'll be that this way a hundred years from now, Chris, you've got to have leads. And you see on LinkedIn, I mean, you probably get hit. I get, you know, 15 Mm -hmm. hits an hour on LinkedIn about, you know, setting my leads, you know, and there's a reason for that because people, most salespeople are lazy. They don't want to have to 
go out there and get their leads. So the first thing we did is figure out a great lead system. And we did. And how we did that, we beta tested it. And we did a direct mail campaign. And I went out there and I spent $17,000. I'll never forget it because I think I blacked out when I wrote the check back then. <laughs> <laughs> but I spent $17,000. And we, we did this mailing. We did three different mailings to test each different mail piece. And the one that came in good. And it took six weeks back then. It was six long weeks, man. Because by the time the mail got sorted, got because you buy the cheapest way to deliver mail back then it was carry route and sort. And so you want to, you don't want to pay 18 cents for, you wanted to pay five cents and nine cents. And so it was very slow, but it came back. And when it finally came back, it told us what lead piece, what direct mail piece worked. That was the first system. The second system was now to make sure that we had the salesperson showing up at the house. Now I know you're going to find this hard to believe, Chris, but salespeople are lazy. <laughs> that's right i said it okay? right that's why that's, we get into sales in the first place to try right. and be more lazy right yeah because you could, they've got the gift that god blessed them with that they could sit there and sell and then make 10 grand and sit on their butt for the next four weeks right. so what what we did is we wanted to make sure the salespeople ran their appointments because if we just gave them the leads which we did for a while oh my gosh they'd come up with 85 you know excuses come sunday why they couldn't run the appointments you know and we had people you know you know, leave them in the car or leave them at the hotel or the car wash guy threw them away or whatever. And these things were, you know, 10 and 20 hour bills were handing them. They're very expensive to generate. So the second system we had was making sure that the salespeople followed through and followed up. And how we did that, we held their hand, we set their appointments. And then after they ran the appointment, they would call in and verify what happened. And we would call the client back and do a QC on the call. Okay. That was the second system. Third system was paying the agent, paying the sales rep. We found that salespeople want instant gratification. Imagine that, yeah. right? So, so if we can pay that agent within one week of half of them turning their sales business in, then we'd had a deal. So we had the lead system, we had the delivery system, and we had the pay system. We had those three things figured out. And then what we put in was the incentive system. And the incentive system, system, system excuse me, was motivating and, and promoting. Salespeople love to hear their name. They love to see their name on a plaque. They love to see their name in lights. And, you know, that's what we did. We promoted them. They felt like Hollywood movie stars every time they came into our office. We made big things about them, especially the big sales. The big dog got to eat. The big dog would come in. We'd have a big check. We'd have his wife come in and deliver the check to him and tell him how big a hero he was. And, and just to motivate them. Because, look, the people that went out there back in, you know, the 90s when we were doing this thing, you know, they would make $250,000, $300,000 a year. That was big money back then, and very few people could do it. Right. And so the uh, straight commission. So we motivated them. Then we'd take them on trips. Then we'd make sure that the wives were happy. And I'm, I know I saw some sexist was saying wives. We had female salespeople too, but mostly we were the men. But we would promote them also. The 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 sixth system system, if you will, fifth or sixth, is to just uh, let, let them enjoy, let them uh, enjoy the fruits of their labor. And we would send them on nice trips to, to, to Rome, to France, to Monte Carlo, to Alaska cruise trips, to Cabo San Lucas, that kind of thing. So we had that figured out. So once you had all those systems and look, this stuff didn't happen overnight. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, it took, it took about four, three to four years to really get it to mastery. And then it was still, uh, then we still had to keep changing and, and, and tweaking the system. Uh, because things would change. 
I think that's another really important lesson. Like you, you mentioned, it took three to four years to get to mastery of, of your system. And then, you know, you continually did that over time. Even uh, you said you were, I think, putting 8.5 million into um, leads oh, annually yeah. Yeah, at one point. And, um, and, and, and that's a, a real, a realistic expectation for the entrepreneurs out there is like Michael worked three to four years to get his systems down in the very beginning. And, uh, most people hope as newer entrepreneurs that they're going to make, you know, their millions within three to four years. And, and it's just not, it's possible, but not probable. Right. Right. And, and so, you know, you're, you're thinking long-term, you're strategizing long-term would you say you're naturally good at long-term thinking is, or is that just something that you happen to just kind of do along the way? Were you long-term planning this business at all or no, no. Okay. <laughs> no, I laugh when you say that. And I, I can hear all my, all my, uh, my old, my old, uh, uh staff in there just snickering right now. Because, <laughs> no, no, I, what I, what I did do though, uh, no, because I, you know, no, I was ADD all over the place. I wanted, you know, you know, I would, I would crunch it and dunch it like overnight, you know, stack them and rack them and let's go on to the next thing. And so that, that was probably my flaw in, in a big business. And I write in my book, probably the first thing I, I, the first chapter I talk about is I probably held on too long as an entrepreneur. I should have brought in more professional management later on, but that's another story. Um, but no, what I did, what, what, what I was blessed with Chris is knowing that my limitations are what they are. My, you know, I'm an expert at motivating. I'm an expert at coaching. I'm an expert at sales, uh, inspirational and, and, and making it rain. I'm a rainmaker. What I'm not good at is troughing that rain. What I'm not good at is setting up forecast and setting up, you know, vast systems. I couldn't run the computer. I mean, you know, and they wouldn't give me the checkbook because, I would screw it up before dark. You know, mm. I knew, I knew what I was good at. And so I surrounded myself with people. I hired a bunch of MBAs, even hired a PhD. And, um, I had, uh, some, I had a really good staff. We ended up with, uh, some really great staff and we had, I don't know, 40, 50 people in the home office and I paid them well too. I did. I tied their, you know, I gave them good salaries, but I also tied them to the, the, the profitability of the company, which, I think was really good. And with that, you know, they would do a lot of forecasting. Now we would have arguments about the forecasting because I always looked at, you know, hitting Mars and they would say, listen, let's just get to the moon. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. they, they would have to, they would have to temper me down a little bit. And then sometimes they would give me a little bit more, but it was good to have that. So no, I wasn't a for, I, I wouldn't think out past, you know, a year and a half, 18 months was like going out way into the future for me. Uh, but they would plan out things five to 10 years down the road, which was really beneficial. Okay. How, when you're, when you're like that, cause I think a lot of entrepreneurs do want to aim for Mars and then have a team that shoots for the moon. And, and I think that's, that's a great combination to have, but how do you manage that as, as a boss and as a leader? Because, um, you know, it would be easy to say, oh, they don't, my team's not dreaming as big as I do. Maybe we should get somebody else on the team sort of thing. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. Yeah. So my, my, my whole theory on that was always keep my aces in their places. Right. Okay. And listen, I was a visionary. I was the entrepreneur. I was the motivator. I, I was the, you know, that person. Uh, and we can only have one of those, you know, you, you can't have 
two number ones because it just doesn't work, right? So, but then you you need to have a COO, you need to have a you know uh, you need to have a, a, a CFO, you need to have these people in place that are going to really help mold this and do the right thing. And look, it was um, we we would get into some heated arguments, mm-hmm. and and I love that they had passion like that because they cared about the business. Yeah, you know, if they were always just yes, men, then I wouldn't need them. I, you know, I don't want that. I wanted people that would rebuke me, that would also call me out and say, McIntyre, you're wrong in this. And here's why. And uh, I would mostly succumb to that. I really would, because I knew what I could do. But I, they were, they were flabbergasted when I would say, listen, we're going to go out there and, you know, we're going to hit, you know, $400 million in sales this, this year when nobody else in the industry has done that. And then not only do we hit 400 million, but we beat it by 20%. They were like, you know, they couldn't believe that. But so they had a respect for me in that short-term deal. And I had a respect for them in, in what position where they are in. So I just, I always felt, and I guess it was maybe as a God-given ability just to look at people and put their ace, put these people, the aces in their places or where they belong and leave them alone. And that's the probably in early days, Chris, I was very immature and I would come in and do the hokey pokey and I'd mess everything up. So uh, I learned after a few people tendered their resignation, I said, okay, I've got to let them do what they are to do. I'm paying them well. I need to let them be who they are. And that's one thing I coach a lot of people on is, you know, let your big dogs eat. Don't take it away from them. Don't take their bowl from them. Okay. Um, what are some of the things you look for, Michael, when, when you said um, you put your aces in the, their places and let them roll with it? Um, but you said you're good at picking out where people belong. What, what are the, the little things that you look for in a person to ensure that they're going to the right place or going to have the right position in the company? Yeah, it's a good question, man. You got you're a good interviewer, Chris. I like this interview. This so Thank, this thanks, man. After 500 or so, you know, you pick up a couple skills. <laughs> Amen. I get it. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I when I'm hiring somebody at that level, here's what the first thing I'm looking for is tragedy. Uh, I want I want somebody that's had some tragedy in their life. I want somebody that's had you know maybe a divorce. Maybe they come out. Maybe they're you know three years in AA. Maybe they've experienced death of a loved one. Uh, maybe they filed bankruptcy. Maybe they've had something happen that's been tragic. Tragic, and I, and I I found that person always in a C level or and uh, because I want to have somebody that's around because in our business, in my business, we we were running at you know we were running optimal. We were running at you know full tilt, and I like to say that we we. I, I was fortunate to have a couple of jets and we'd be flying down a runway trying to tape the wing on. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so that's how we ran with our business. And so I wanted people that would, if we got challenged, if we got had a storm that they weren't going to get rattled. And so with that, I found that these kind of people could handle the situations. And so then if I put it, let's say I brought in an MBA to be in charge of this, you know, all the money, uh, I want to see if, if I know that they're going to be good at it, if they're passionate about what they're at, listen, accounting, you know, I know how to do accounting and, you know, I took some lessons and ca- some classes in college, but I, I would just soon, you know, go see Jesus than sit there and do accounting. Okay. Right. I'm not, that's not my thing. So, but I want to see, I want to see my CFO or my, you know, I want to see him or her excited and passionate about their accounting so when they come into my office and they tell me and they start if they if they're passionate about something if they're excited about something even though i might not be then i know i've got my ace in their place and yeah 
No, no, go, go ahead. ahead. And so if, if, if they're excited about that, then they're where they're supposed to be. And on the opposite end, if they're not excited about it, if they're not, you know, just passionate about it, and I know everybody gets a down day or a down week, but if they're, if they're not, then we're I need to question why, why are they in this spot? What, why, what is it that they don't like about this position? Because the way I paid in the compensation, it wasn't just a decent six figure income. It was something that they could attach to them to where they could make a seven figure income if things went the right way in their bonus structure. That makes sense. Um, how, so you started in 1992. What year was it, Michael, when you exited the agency? I sold the company in 2007 and it was like a three month process into 2008. Okay. So we have about uh, 16 years there or yeah, so. It seemed like it was longer. So, <laughs> you know, seven, yeah. Um, yeah. If you could break that 16 years or so into different chapters of the life of, uh, of the company while you were there, um, what would those chapters be? Wow. It's a great question. Uh, I'd probably say that, that probably the first five years was uh, probably like Gunsmoke, man, Maverick. It was like, okay. it, it was, it was uh, shooting from the hip wherever you yeah, go. Like shooting it. from the hip, man. It was like, and it was really fascinating because we had such growth uh, in that early time, even though in the second part of the company, we actually expanded more, but for that, you know, to get the train to leave the station, so to speak, takes a hell of a lot of energy. It takes a lot of coal to get that engine from the from the uh, station. And so the first five years, it took everything, you know, it really did. And I, I risked everything. Uh, you know, I remember a lot of times I, our Amax bill would hit 80 grand and I'd beg Amax to give us another 10,000 that month and they would. And then I'd go down there and, 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 wait, you know, it, I was, it's like the 45th day that I could take that check down there at the info Mart in Dallas to give them the check. And I'd always wait till after three o'clock. So I can make sure day to clear the check. Uh -huh. And that was the, that was, it was Maverick. It was gun smoke. It was gambler time, but it was exciting. It was risk-taking. So, uh, but that's how we built that. And, and going from that, you know, that first five years was probably the gambler the risk, the maverick time. And then the next five years was, was pure expansion. And, and um, that's when we really got, we started getting wealthy. And when I say wealthy, I mean, the company was printing cash at that point. And so, uh, and we were setting records and it was so nice, Chris, because we had companies, insurance companies start giving us money uh, just to get, get our business. And it was, it was nice to be pursued rather than a pursuer. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, you walk in at, a, at, a, at you know, your high school dance and all of a sudden somebody wants to ask you to dance. Like, like Sadie Hawkins, <laughs> it. it was like, this is different. Uh -huh. And so, uh, but we had, we did so well that we attracted a lot of people. And so, and we were the envy of the insurance industry because we had the fewest agents, but the most production. So our, our productivity, our effectiveness was off the charts. And um, we were, re, we were, we were trailblazers. We were rewriting the whole industry. And, uh, that was a lot of fun. It was, it was a heady time. Uh, I bought a couple, you know, jets and spent some money and traveled a lot. And I probably, I probably got into too much of an ego system at that time for that next period. So I, I would say it was a, uh, it was the great Gatsby era for me for the next five years. If, if that's a good analogy, gotcha. uh, had a lot of fun, made a lot of money, made a lot of people really wealthy, which was a lot of fun for us. Um, and, you know, it was, we expanded, we expanded from eight states to 40 states. 
uh, we had a company go up there and we had, we've got into New York state, which was really cool, which was rare. We had to buy an insurance company in New York state to get there because you got to be in New York. You got to have your home office there. So that was interesting. And then probably the, the next uh, five years is probably, uh, I don't know, probably um, figuring out what, you know, why I'm not so excited anymore. And mm. probably, and, and probably at that point, I probably should have brought in professional management. Um, but I decided to sell. And the first suitor I had was General Electric. Jack Welch came down and wanted to buy the company, okay. uh, which was really kind of cool. And uh, I liked Jack Welch. I was a big I was a big fan. I read all his stuff and him and uh, him and Michael Eisner were really booming at the time. And I kind of followed those guys at Disney. And and so uh, but there was a bad Wall Street Journal article about the insurance industry that hit in Florida at that time. So that can everything kind of came off the shelf. So that postponed selling the company about four more years. And probably during that four years, I wasn't as enthusiastic as I was the first, you know, 12. So uh, probably the, the the last chapter would probably be the the uh the exit strategy <laughs> you know yeah uh, i was getting to where i was getting tired you know we had insurance industry is highly regulated it's a great industry it's fun um but i was probably out there saying you know it's time to move on to something next yeah what do you think it was you know i think you said in chapter three you felt like you kind of lost the the flair for the company um you think you were just ready for something new I think so. I think I was probably at the boredom point. Uh, you know, my pockets were full. The money was great. And, and it's probably the worst thing. I probably, like I said, I probably would have been better to bring in a professional manager, uh, brought in a Wharton guy and said, okay, here, why don't I just, you know, be on the, you know, I'll be on the board. I'll be the chairman of the board and I'm going to go out and start a couple other deals. And that's probably what I should have did. Uh, but every time I looked to do that, I just, it was hard to give up to your baby. It yeah. just was Chris, you know, and I think that's one of the faults when I coach people now that, that they're at that place, you know, they made a couple hundred million bucks or they, you know, they're, they got their $10 million or whatever their number is to make them feel better about themselves. I say, okay, either let's sell this thing out or let's put somebody in place and let you go, you know, do what, what is it that you want to do now? You know, cause I think as entrepreneurs, we constantly have that burning desire to what's next. Yeah. Was for me anyway, like, like I'm doing all kinds of things now, which I, I really love to do. And people ask me always, do I miss the insurance business? And I say, no, I love coaching the insurance business. I like consulting it, but no, I did my run and it was a great run and we set records and, you know, we get, we got names in the hall of fame and I'm happy with that. Do you consult just uh, people in the insurance business or all different types of businesses? No, all different types. In fact, the insurance business is probably the least I do. Okay. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe they don't want to work as hard as I did. I don't know. Uh, but, but I do all kinds. I do mostly entrepreneurs, um, you know, people that have anywhere from $5 million to, you know, $100 million in revenue a year. Uh, I do some startups, but very few. And I do a lot of C-level uh, I like sea level and I like the entrepreneurs is where, where my blood's at though. Um, so let's go back to those, those chapters of running your agency. We had Gunsmoke, then we had great Gatsby, grass Gatsby. Then we had, um, what, what we, we call kind that? of a, kind of an exit strategy. Exit. Kind of looking for, yeah. Kind yeah. of looking for the door. Ready yeah. for the next thing sort of thing. Yeah. What do, what do yeah. you think were the biggest mistakes in each chapter for you? Oh gosh. <laughs> we'll start, we'll start wow. with Gunsmoke. Yeah. Uh, 
Gosh, probably bringing too much family in the first the first couple of years. You know, I'd, I'd probably bring too many family members into the business and try to I always you know, I came from a very modest background and I wanted everybody to be rich. Right. And, um, you know, I wanted them to be rich like me. And so I would probably want to have that. And I shared too much. Yeah. And I think when you shared, do that, you sorry, shared too much financially or shared too much financial money okay. and positions. Yeah. yeah. And I think. And that was probably just because, you know, we didn't, I didn't grow up with money and I didn't have that. I didn't have the pedigree for that. You know, we didn't go to, you know, Wharton law school or, uh, or business school or NYU. Uh, so I wanted them to experience what I experienced. And, and so that was probably, that was probably my bit, one of my biggest mistakes. I think I made, you know, sharing too much because of, I didn't have that pedigree uh, or that mentorship that I, that I really needed to handle. I was first generation money and that was difficult. Yeah. Okay. So, so maybe getting a mentor at, at that level that has walked that path to, to kind of guide you along the way would be a good yeah, option. Totally. Yeah. That'd have been a huge benefit. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we'll go into a great Gatsby it's Gatsby or Gapsy? Gatsby, Gatsby. I think it's great Gatsby. Yeah, yeah. Leonardo, whatever that guy's name, did the latest one, which was kind of good. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Um, yeah, DiCaprio. Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. DiCaprio yeah. yeah. Biggest mistakes during that time? Oh, spent too much money. Uh, gosh, you know, I I wanted my own jet, and I went out and bought one. I, I chartered a couple of jets, and I went out and bought one. Then I bought another one. Uh, and thought I was going to be a aviation tycoon. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and I, I was, I, I spent $6 million one day on a plane. Didn't tell my wife that, you know, that didn't go good. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so I think that made a mistake and I, you know, um, so if I, if I could go back to then, I'd have probably just, you know, chartered and leased, you know, instead of doing that, but you know, you just do stupid things. I mean, I was in my thirties, you know, making, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year. And so you just do some stupid things, but, um, I came out okay, uh, because of, you know, the tax benefits of, of being able to write things down. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's probably one of them. I spent too much. And then, um, probably the other thing was, uh, I probably didn't, didn't let go enough uh, let the managers do what they really wanted to do. I think one one of the biggest things the insecurities a lot of entrepreneurs have is losing control. And I think they they feel that they're going to lose control, but it's really a, it's not true. And all they have to do is let the people do their job. And 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 I think that's probably I should have done more than that during that period of time. Okay, so then we move into exit strategy. Um, biggest mm-hmm. mistakes during that period. Uh, gosh, I, I would say mostly getting bored and then going, you know, uh, and not, not, not getting that fire refreshed. You know, I think really, if I, if I could go back in time and say, okay, I should have stuck it out a little bit longer, maybe did it differently. One of the, uh, a wise man taught me, uh, one of my mentors, he said, you know, listen, whatever you do, don't ever, don't ever work to sell your company, work like you're never going to sell your company always keep pouring into it constantly and don't look left. Don't look right. Look straight ahead, put the blinders on and always be pouring into that company. Like it's going to be there forever. And I didn't do that. I think I looked at the barn. I think I saw the barn too early. Okay. Oh, that's fan. That's really great advice. Okay. 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 We're going to leave it right here. That was the end of part one next week. You will get to start right up where this one left off, and we're going to have part two of McIntyre's guest 
appearance on the Business Method Podcast. Thank you so much for checking out the show today. Do not forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon, wherever it's at. Share it with your friends, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Next Level Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share. For more resources to help you maintain your next level life, join our community at themichaelmcintyre.com.